Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome once again to another wonderful episode of the SLS Cast. This week's episode, episode 72. The Star Number episode. Fuck that, screwed it up. Episode 73. The Star Number episode. Now you might be asking yourself, a star number? That's right, ladies and gentlemen. A star number is a centered, figurate number that represents a centered hexagram or six-pointed star, such as that one that Chinese checkers are played upon. 73 is such a number. And with that little bit of mathological knowledge, I am your ever-inquisitive host, Matt. Hello, Matt. I am Tim. Hello there, Tim. (laughs) Good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, too. How was, uh, how was your past week? Uh, just wrapping up the semester and losing my mind doing so. Really? Is it, is it your that, Espanol? No, Espanol, math, history, pick your poison. I'm just trying to get through it at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, quick question, because I don't know if it's, maybe it might be different for, you know, whatever school you go to, but your final exam... For your Spanish class, is it a oral exam, or is it strictly written exam, or is it a combination of the two? It's a standard comprehensive exam. It's uh, over six chapters of the textbook. We had our last oral presentation uh, last week, and I aced the oral presentation. Oh, nice. Feel free to practice on the show if you want. We would love to hear your your presentation. <laughs> Ah, gracias. No. <laughs> oh, the word one word that translates over through every language is no. <laughs> Indeed. What about you? Anything fun or exciting happening for you this week? Well, I'm hoping that I I don't sound like I'm in a coffin anymore. I mean, I figured last week I had to record in the in a little bitty hallway. And I thought, surely, you know, recording in this hallway, the, the audio should sound, at least the audio that I was hearing whenever I was, I was speaking, the, the raw audio, I guess, it sounded fine. But then when I went back and listened to the recording with my headphones, it sounded like I was recording in a hole. And thanks to Bitchy McBitch Stomperson living upstairs, I have to kind of relocate every week to find that new sweet spot. So hopefully this week I'm recording in the living room, so bigger space. Uh, other th- you can hear air conditioning units outside, which I probably shouldn't say that because out here it is a hot and sweaty 79 degrees outside, which I'm sure in Houston it's got to be quite warmer now. Uh, so if you hear anything in the background, I apologize. I'm trying my best to give you guys the best audio recording here in Los Angeles. So, we'll see how it goes this week. How is the weather over there? Uh, it's nice. It's uh, it's not been too swelteringly hot. It's gotten up into the upper 80s out here. It has not been... But it's... Thankfully, it's not the, It's not humid. It's not all that humid yet. So, it's been bearable. It's uh, I want to say it's like 73 degrees outside right now. Not so, bad. not too terrible. Yeah. Uh, however, because I am the long-suffering, I just turn off my ac unit every week i turn off my ac unit so i literally broil 
in my home recording so that there is as little ambient noise as possible and you don't hear that chicken noise coming on or whatever. So, yeah. In the weird, like, rattling noise that air, condi- air conditioned units has, it's like, what is rattling? I mean, it, it, how can they last so long with all the rattling going on in that unit? It, it just baffles my mind. That is definitely a, one of those pieces of technology that I will never, well, I guess I will always respect because of how it holds itself up. I don't know. I might just Indeed. be weird. I, I, I agree. I would not be a ha- happy camper without my air conditioning. Yeah, especially in Houston. The semi-tropics. <laughs> All right. Well, since I guess we have had just such enthralling weeks, I suppose we can just go ahead and get a head start on... Are you ready for it? I believe so. The news! Yes, the news. The news, the news, the news. All right, so I have, uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump in here first. I, I have but four pieces of news this week. However, one of them is this big, gigantic, hawking freaking thing. So I'm going to go ahead and just knock that out of the way. We're going to let Tim relax, get used to his new environment, bask in his wobbly, warbly, rattly AC, and, uh, you know, just kind of convalesce for any stress. Oh, it's not my AC. It's other people's AC. It's too late. I'm sorry. It's your AC now. <laughs> Coming to us from readingstory.com, 18 great movies that flopped. Now, this story broke just today, the 29th of April, 2014. And you'll notice that I can get the year right when I'm not drunk. I was listening to the show uh, today, and uh, I realized that last week I said April 22nd or whatever it was, 2012. (laughs) It is not 2012 anymore. Ah, yeah. But here are 18 great movies from 1926 the General, a movie, a film that we have actually reviewed on this show. Uh, it was definitely a huge failure, and unfortunately, it ruined, virtually ruined his creative control for his career moving forward. However, fantastic movie today. Next up was from 1939, The Wizard of Oz. Yes, the movie that is beloved by so many children that has been remade and reshown and changed up with the most recent adaptation of Oz the Great and Powerful from Disney. It was not a success when it first came out. People were actually not quite under... They, they just really weren't captivated as much by it because remember they had read the book so recently then. And yet, here it is today, a fantastic movie. The only movie on this list that I have to say that I am dubious about, 1941's Citizen Kane. Considered the greatest film ever made, period. Just not by me. Or or Tim, for that matter. You you don't think this is the best movie ever, do you? 
Citizen Kane? No. No, no yeah. I don't. Okay. No. Okay, good. All right. So we are definitely on the same page there. Um, it's based on uh, William Randolph Hearst. And Orson Welles was actually only 26 years old when he made this movie. And yet, uh, while people still think it's greatest today, I- I- I'm going to side with the critics of the day. Next up, 1946, It's a Wonderful Life, the perennial holiday classic, bombed critically and financially at the box office when it came out. It was so bad that they let, that Republic Pictures actually let the copyright lapse, which is how it actually became a perennial holiday favorite, because TV stations would play it for free. And people were beginning to get the nostalgia factor and everything, and there you have it. Next up, 1955's The Night of the Hunter. Now, this is quite possibly the scariest fucking Robert Mitchum role I have ever seen in my life. My mother, to this day, even up to his grave, would never watch another Robert Mitchum movie again because of this film. He plays such a... An amazing bad guy, and he's a preacher, and he's and 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 you may have kept, caught glimpses of this. It's Robert Mitchum. He's a he's a preacher, and he's got love and hate tattooed on his knuckles, and he has a really fun kind of sermon thing that he has about it, and it's just absolutely chilling. Oh, but it was so good, and yet because of its subject matter and how dark it was, it didn't do very well at the time that it came out. But it is just an absolutely outstanding film. Next up from 1966, The Chase. Yes, just before Arthur Penn would change the landscape of American film industry forever with Bonnie and Clyde, he directed The Chase. And it was too much like a similar film that actually did very well called Peyton Place. And yet, so they, they were they didn't really like it at the time, but it's really quite a powerful movie. And I think one of Marlon Brando's best roles. For me, we're gonna jump almost 20 years here. Next up is 1982's Blade Runner. This movie just did not catch on when it was in the theaters. It was a it was disappointing when it first came out. However, it quickly gained a cult following and has since come to define sci-fi of that period. I highly recommend. Uh, you check it out. There's all, multiple versions out there to enjoy, and I think it just kind of goes to show the genius that is Ridley Scott. Of course, now this one is probably one that I don't necessarily disagree with, but I do kind of question why it's on this list. 1982's One from the Heart. Francis Ford Coppola originally conceived this as an antidote to his high-cost productions like Apocalypse Now. But unfortunately, because it's Francis Ford Coppola and he does things a very particular way, he had a $2 million budget that ballooned to $25 million. And he did it in order to build sets that would properly tell the story in the way that he wanted to do it uh it's part musical part fantasy part rom-com kinda um 
it's a very interesting movie. I, I think it's got merit in terms of really seeing where an artistic vision can go. But I'm not sure exactly how amazing this movie really is. Uh, have you ever seen this one, Tim? One from the Heart, 1982? Actually, no. I, I've never seen One from the Heart. I would definitely say that you should definitely check it out. I, I think that if anybody would have a chance of appreciating this movie, it'd be you. Not to mention, I mean, it's Terry Gar, and she's hot. So, you know, there's... there's that is true. That. At least uh, <laughs> at that part of her career, she was. True. True. All right. Well, let's see here. Next up is 1984's Once Upon a Time in America. And... This is a movie that, all right, Sergio Leone. Come on now, we all, we we just talked about him for our uh, Man with No Name trilogy. He he got this into Cannes to the Cannes Film Festival at two hundred and twenty nine minutes. Now his original version was two hundred and sixty nine minutes, and people loved it. However, and you can get that version on DVD now. But when the film went to the U.S. audiences, they cut it down to 139 minutes. And they changed the way that the flashback structure of the movie works. And thus, destroyed the movie. Okay? Um, you know, there's, there's someone out there today who thinks he can cut up foreign films because U.S. audiences can't handle it. I mean, I'm not going to name any names, point fingers, elbows, but I think you know who we're talking about here. This is why you don't do that. Go and check out this movie. Um, Martin Scorsese actually found a, or actually was able to re-edit one into 245-minute cut, but he hasn't put it out for general public because he's got to do more restoration on it. Next up, 1985's Brazil. Now, this is a movie that is extremely polarizing. It's from direct, uh, director Terry Gilliam, former Monty Python. And, of course, it's very surreal. It's dystopian. Uh, it, it's quirky. It's funny. It's not funny. Uh... It's very hard to describe this movie, and that's part of the reason why it did not do so well commercially. Now, there are two different cuts of the movie. One is the is Gilliam's director's cut, and then there is a second version that Universal did without Gilliam. And depending on which movie you see will definitely color your experience I am not that big of a fan of Brazil um, but I never actually saw Gilliam's cut so are you I serious don't know if that's why yeah you've never I, seen I, I've only seen you've never seen one. Terry Gilliam's cut of the movie no because I didn't like I didn't like the one that I saw so much I didn't know at the time that there were two versions oh my and I didn't God, like the one that, is... that I watched I'll put it out there real quick. So, There's a, I mean, if you're able to uh, get a good deal on it, the Criterion Blu-ray edition, the Criterion edition of Brazil, that came out within mm -hmm. the last year, it has both the Terry Gilliam cut as well as the really bad uh, Love Conquers All TV version of it. And there's a fantastic documentary about the whole uh, behind-the-scenes, uh, I guess, dispute between Lou Wasserman Universal and... 
Terry Gilliam over this movie, and it's very fascinating. I mean, you should definitely, or anybody who is interested, should definitely check it out. Well, then, I, I might look into that. Because, again, it's totally colored my perception. I, I've never seen the Gilliam version. I've only seen the... Uh, it's what they call the happy ending, um, which is the one that Universal did. And I didn't like... I'm sorry, I didn't like it. So, you know. Um, but, be that as it may, we then move on to one of my favorite movies. Uh, 1986's Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> uh, John Carpenter... Uh, it's just a fantastic movie. It's absolutely funny, totally over the top, on purpose. Check it out. It's Kurt Russell. I frankly think Kurt Russell at his best. It did not do well in the theater, but it has, again, since gained a massive cult following and is hugely popular today. Next up, 1990s Joe versus the Volcano. Now, this I think... This was right before Tom Hanks really struck it big in terms of the man, the actor that we know today. This was two years, two or three years before Philadelphia. Yeah, three years before Philadelphia and four years before Forrest Gump. This is a movie about a guy who is a hypochondriac convinced that he's going to die and decides to go out in style. And... It's just very, very simple. I leave it at that. Meg Ryan, also in this movie, for those of you who like that tag team. Meg Ryan in multiple roles, even. Next up, 1995, Strange Days, which is uh, directed by Catherine Bigelow and co-written by James Cameron. Now, you've got Angela Bassett in this movie, Ralph Fiennes, and... Oh, goodness... Oh, Natural Born Killers. Juliet Lewis. Oh, yeah. And this is just, that man, this movie is just way crazy. But it was too divided, and you could tell that it was too divided when it came out. But it's still a really good movie. I would check that out. Uh, 1999's The Insider, which was based on True Story. It's got Al Pacino, Russell Crowe, um, Christopher Plummer. It, it's just a fantastic movie about a guy who was a whistleblower in the tobacco industry. Great, great, great. 1999's The Iron Giant. Uh, if you'll remember, we were talking about Vin Diesel and his uh, the part he plays as a treant, uh, Groot or whatever, in Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, he has a very similar role here that we were referring to in The Iron Giant, where he plays the role of the Iron Giant. Doesn't exactly have dialogue, per se, but still really manages to convey emotion and character. Uh, very interesting movie. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, you've got 2005's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr. Very funny movie. This is actually, for me, very funny. Kind of dark movie, but very funny. I like it and goes to show why uh, people should not dismiss Val Kilmer. And, of course, you should pretty much watch anything with Robert Downey Jr. in it. 2007's The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. I think what doomed this movie was the title. It's actually a pretty good character. Um... Uh, character film uh does a lot to and it's got brad pitt and it's pretty recent i'm surprised that people more people didn't go see it just for because it was brad pitt it's a good movie great character study uh interesting it's a western and it's a good western it's kind of sad because people always remember things like lone ranger and 
they miss out on things like this, and then you, now westerns start to go away, and you know we don't have another Sergio Leone on hand right now to to <laughs> reinvigorate the western genre. So check that one out. And then lastly, 2012's Dread. There is still tangible hope for a sequel, a sequel to this, but yeah, Dread. We already discussed this one on the show. I just wanted to get that out there. And that's the list. You can check it out, read everything about all these things entirety at readingstory.com. Reading-story.com. There you go, sir. Take it away. Alrighty, so I have a lot of segments for my news, but the first segment, mini-segment, sub-segment is... Do we really need this? What? And the first movie, I have two of them, but the first movie that... I ask you listeners, or listener, or listeners, if do we really need this? I would love your feedback on it. Uh, the first one is from The Hollywood Reporter, and it turns out that Mattel, Sony Pictures, as well as Parks and McDonald are planning on bringing a live-action Barbie movie to theaters. And this Hollywood Reporter website here just had an update from uh, the last time I read it, and it says that the first live-action comedy is going to be the first in a planned franchise which will go into production at the end of this year that's right we're going to have a barbie live action comedy franchise i thought we already had that and it was called legally blonde so i i'm not sure how they're going to do this thank you legos for spawning a whole bunch of Movies based on little plastic toys that little girls either played with, ripped off the hair, or made them do promiscuous things with their brother's G.I. Joes. What it says here, the first film is written by Jenny Bix and produced by Walter F. Parks and Laurie McDonald. Parks McDonald production CEO Mark Rustigini will executive produce alongside Julia Pister for Mattel's Playground Productions. Uh, that is exciting. However, what I think warrants the most of being asked, do we really need this, is this film. Do we really need a movie based on the awkwardly disgusting Easter candy called Peeps? Apparently we do. And this is what it says. Sometimes, And this is a, from a Cinema Blend article. They say that sometimes a good movie sparks negative trends. Such in the case with a critically beloved The Lego Movie, which has grossed $441 million worldwide and is set for a sequel in 2017, it's impossible to ignore the success of a film partially driven by merchandise. In perhaps their saddest exclusive ever, Deadline reports that the film and TV rights to Marshmallow Peeps, a $2 billion a year operation, have been purchased. And now, screenwriter Adam Rifkin has been tasked with writing a Peeps film. The plot, and it says, yes, there is a plot, would involve Peeps in a diorama contest where one Peep is misplaced and must hustle to rejoin the rest of the crew, hopping in and out of various other dioramas. Yes, a Peeps movie. Soon we might have a Reese's movie or an M&M's movie. Who knows? So I ask you guys, really need a Barbie movie and a Peeps movie? If you don't think so, please write to us at 
theslscast at gmail.com or just comment on our Facebook or hell, just look us up in the phone book and just give us a call. All right, coming to us from BGR.com, courtesy of Zach Epstein. Amazon Prime users will soon have access to HBO shows for the first time. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We might not be using Netflix much longer. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Amazon and HBO on Wednesday announced a first-of-its-kind deal that will make HBO content available to Amazon Prime subscribers. Several popular HBO shows and miniseries will be included in the deal, and content can be streamed to computers, smartphones, tablets, and TVs using Amazon's various video streaming apps. What's more, all newly available HBO content will also be available uh, on Amazon's new Fire TV streaming set-top box, which means I might just have to go and buy one now so that I can get all the newly stuff, uh, all the new stuff. Content covered in the New Deal includes shows like The Sopranos, Six Feet Under, The Wire, Eastbound and Down, Family Tree, uh, Treme, Band of Brothers, John Adams, and early seasons of Boardwalk Empire and True Blood. This is actually really cool because for those of us who do not subscribe to cable, and since HBO, for whatever, has signed their deal with the devil and won't provide internet access... I think this is a really good step in that direction, and what a coup to what a coup to top for Amazon. I mean, good lord, in your face, Netflix. We just got HBO, so I think it's pretty cool. I'm very excited to see how this goes, and I can't wait until it comes on next month, which starts in like two days. Yay! Alrighty, so my next sub segment is kicking the bell. Um, as far as playing him in a movie, that's such, a, that's such an obtuse rumor that um, I, I never had the pleasure of cultivating. That's not my, uh, not my idea. Oh, these are always fun and exciting, these kicking the bales. Uh, this is where a... I, well, whoever's doing it, this is where we like to kind of pick on the movies or pick on those people that expect that so-and-so is going to be obviously be in a movie and it turns out that obviously they are not going to be in the movie for example christian bell in the justice league movie because so many people don't understand that when they say no we will not reprise our role they mean no we will not reprise our role unless of course they are johnny depp but that is neither here nor there i quoted matthew quinton with that saying all right, first up here is the Spider-Man and X-Men crossover movie. And you see, this was... I mean, people have been talking. Andrew Garfield, the Spider-Man character of the, the newer movies, as well as Hugh Jackman, the Wolverine, has been talking about in the past, or brought up in the past, that they would like to have some kind of crossover movie since they're not directly, you know, related to the, uh, the Avengers, the Iron Man movies, and all that stuff. And this has kind of been coming up again since the new Spider-Man movie, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, has opened overseas before its U.S. theatrical release. And it has been reported that there, there is, in fact, a clip at the end, you know, one of the, a scene at the end, a special scene at the end. However, it does not pertain to The Amazing Spider-Man. Instead, it is pertaining to the X-Men Days of Future Past, and it, it 
it's with Mystique. Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique, and she does whatever. I'm not sure the extent of what it is. In fact, I really don't want it to uh, to get ruined if it's actually meaning something. So, of course, they're like, well, why would the X-Men be previewing something at the end of Spider-Man? Could this mean something? No, it doesn't mean anything at all. More hype for X-Men, because X-Men is not a Paramount movie. X-Men is a fo- it belongs to Fox. Spider-Man belongs to Paramount. You know, they both work with Marvel, but they're not Marvel movies. So, this is what you got. Nothing. Look forward to that, folks. Next up, Mrs. Doubtfire Part 2. And I don't know about you, Matt, but I've been so looking forward to a sequel of Mrs. Doubtfire. Not. According to this Hollywood Reporter article here, the studio is developing a sequel to the 1993 hit Mrs. Doubtfire, which would reunite director Chris Columbus and star Rob Williams. David Birnbaum, who wrote Elf, is writing the script. And Bonnie Hunt wrote the, the, the first movie. She's a very funny lady. I don't think she's really been doing too much as of late. And it says here that a sequel has been in the works since 2001 when Bonnie Hunt was tapped to write a screen, or excuse me, to write a script. But despite many drafts, and other scribes hired, the project slowly died and has been inactive for years, mainly due to Columbus and Williams not sparking to any new take. And it looks like this will happen. However, however, I will say Sally Field has not been approached, and it looks like I have a feeling they're end up gonna have they're gonna have to take a totally new approach to this movie because. The little girl who played the youngest daughter, Mara Wilson, tweeted her thoughts about uh, this production. And this is what she said via tweet. For the record, no, I do not have anything to do with the Mrs. Doubtfire sequel. She also said, I've been in some mediocre movies, but I've never been in a sequel. And I have no interest in being in one now. Another tweet which says, sequels generally suck unless they were planned as part of a trilogy or series. I think Doubtfire ended where... It needed to end. And I happen to agree. I'm glad she's just... I mean, Mara Wilson is not a big-name star anymore. Uh, She was definitely a very reliable child star. And it's nice to know that she's just not going to cash in and just take a movie for the sake of taking the movie. So she seems pretty smart. And that's actually pretty nice. And so that is uh, kicking the bell. I'm kicking the bell right there telling you that no, it is not going to be a direct sequel and it's not going to feature every single person. It's got, it cannot be. It cannot feature all the original kids. I hope not. And that's what I got. Last but not least for me is a pair of stories on DC comic book movie news because, you know, Apparently, Hollywood doesn't do much anything else anymore. First up from Variety.com, courtesy of Justin Kroll, Ray Fisher to play Cyborg in Batman Superman movie. After testing actors over the past couple of weeks, Warner Brothers and DC have tapped theater actor Ray Fisher for the role of Cyborg in the untitled Batman Superman pick. Victor Stone, or Cyborg, while not a major part in the Batman Superman feature, is a member of the Justice League, and the role will become much more significant as Warner and DC develop more films related to the Justice League universe. Unfortunately, Warner Brothers had no comment on this story. And it's just kind of, you know, things are shaping up. They're definitely doing all of these things. Why? Because... 
from thewallstreetjournal.com, courtesy of nobody, Warner Brothers Plans Justice League movie directed by Zack Snyder. First came Man of Steel, next up is Batman vs. Superman, and then Justice League. Confirming the studio's plans for a movie based on its iconic super team for the first time, Warner Brothers president of Worldwide Production Greg Silverman said the studio has set plans to make a Justice League movie. Like Man of Steel and its follow-up, which starts production next month, Justice League will be directed by Zack Snyder. Henry Cavill is expected to return as Superman, along with Ben Affleck and Gal Gadot, who play Batman and Wonder Woman, respectively. In 2016's Man of Steel sequel, tentatively titled Batman vs. Superbad. And, ostensibly, Superman vs. Batman is going to lead up to Justice League. So instead of doing the Marvel route where they had, let's see, Hulk, Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, right? One, two, three, four, yeah, six movies to get to the Avengers. Uh, they're just doing two movies and then the Avengers. <laughs> or in their version of the Avengers, Justice League. We all knew it was coming and now it's official. It is a happening and it's happening in this order. Zack Snyder will be there. And, long, and it looks like, at this point, Henry Cavill, Ben Affleck, and Gal Gadot. Alrighty, and I will wrap up the news segment with my last two news pieces here. Uh, these are two I've been sitting on for a while, and I'm pretty excited to share these with you. First up, America's favorite uber-conservative fearmonger, Glenn Beck, wants to be a filmmaker. In fact, he is so close to being a filmmaker. It's going to be pretty bad whenever he makes a movie that I that I might actually give more than two stars to. So we'll see how it goes. Anyways, from thehollywoodreporter.com, the article entitled, entitled, Glenn Beck Moves Into Movie Production, exclusive, and it says that Glenn Beck is going Hollywood. Nearly three years after leaving Fox News, the controversial conservative radio host and media entrepreneur is wrapping up a film division at Mercury Radio Arts, the parent company of his popular radio show and digital media operation, The Blaze. So you got to say Mer- Mercury Radio Arts, Mercury Radio Theater. You know that's uh, that's Orson Welles's theater thing right there. So he's Glenn Beck is very pretentious. Beck fifty years old, tells THR that he has been refurbishing the studios at Las Colinas, a 72,000-square-foot facility in Irving, Texas, where such films such as JFK and Robocop and TV shows including Prison Break and Walker, Texas Ranger have been shot. We're getting it ready for some big plans, he says of the property, which he purchased in June. Beck says he's developing three original stories as theatrical films, One set in ancient history, one in modern history, and a third he considers faith-based. He has optioned several other ideas, some of which could be played, or excuse me, could be adapted into VOD features. He adds that he has purchased rights to his 2008 bestseller, The Christmas Sweater, back from Sony and will turn the story into a movie for television or theatrical release. In quotes, uh, the article here is pretty meaty. And uh, so you can go back, and, or not pretty, just a wee bit meaty, and so you can go through and read it if you want. Again, that's a Hollywood Reporter article entitled, Glenn Beck Moves Into Movie Production, Exclusive. 
Okay, lastly here. From the CinemaBlend.com article entitled The True Story Behind Jean-Claude Van Damme, Predator, and Why He Quit. That is right. For those of you who caught that, Jean-Claude Van Damme was originally the one dressed up in The Predator for the Predator film. And listen to this. Start talking about Predator now. Oh my god. Are we Predator really going to really do this? Of course. One of the most iconic characters in the world. Let's talk about that Okay, what, okay. leave How me. Help s- me. Look, remember... Let's, I start, s- let's start simple. Okay, let's start easy. You're pitched this creature. we got to mm-hmm. pull this thing off. What are we going to do? Okay, so we have this meeting, and uh, we're sitting around a board table, and it's, you know, it's the, it's the usual suspects. It's all of the executives. It's Joel Silver, the director. It's uh, not Joel, the producer, sorry. It's John McTiernan, the director. This is only a second film at that at this point. And so with great pomp and ceremony, McTiernan comes in and slams down a bunch of designs that had already been done by a gentleman, a production designer. And they were awful. It was ahead of its time, let's put it that way. But the head did suck. The head was a... No. So they said, uh, here's what we want you to make. So what they needed was a, a character with backward bent reptilian legs, extended arms, and a head that was out here. And they wanted to shoot on the muddy slopes of Mexico in the real jungles. It was virtually physically impossible to do. I told them it wouldn't work. They wanted to just... Tell the guy to hop around like a frog. And it was Jean-Claude Van Damme who th- had no idea what he was getting into. It was just, he was just off the boat from Brussels. He thought he was going to show his martial arts abilities yes, to I the world. Some martial arts for you. So Jean-Claude comes in for his fittings. And we start. We know that in the beginning of the movie, remember the cloaking device? Where he's kind of... Blah, 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 blah. Beautiful effect for its, its day. But we had to... For the beginning of the shoot make a red version, because red is the opposite of green on the color yeah. wheel. They're being shot against green in the, in the jungle. So Jean-Claude comes in, and we're fitting him in this red suit, and just assuming, like the, the slaves that we are, that the higher-ups have told him exactly what's going on. But he thought this was actually the real look of the monster <laughs> in the movie. And he goes, I hate this. I hate this. I hate it. I, I look like a superhero. And he was so angry about it. I'm like, Jean-Claude, did no one tell you? It's a cloaking device. You're invisible for half the picture. This is not you, which made him even angrier. Because he thought he could do his martial arts. He could fight Arnold Schwarzenegger. Impossible. (laughs) Absolutely impossible. He didn't realize that he was just kind of a stuntman, right? (laughs) We get him out there for the first shot, and he's just seething. We got him in a lawn chair, and you can see his eyes through the rubber muscles of the neck. And he's like, I hate this head. I hate it. I hate, hate, hate it. Our predator didn't work. Yeah, and despite what they say on the video and all that stuff, you guys really need to check it out. Again, it's a cinemablend.com article entitled The True Story Behind Jean-Claude Van Damme, Predator, and Why He Quit. So that wraps up the news. All right, all right. Well, then, here we go, folks. If that's doing the news, then I guess it's time for... I'm the only one who liked it. Who is the one that liked this movie? Not me. Who is the one that wants to watch again? Oh, you? Who is the one that wants to watch the movie? That was stupid. I'm the only one that liked it. That's me, folks, watching the movie. Oh man. I liked that movie and nobody else did. 
Alright. That's right. Okay, so I went first with a big huge news thing, so Tim, why don't you go first? What is your movie this week? Because I I already said what I was gonna do last week as we were kind of talking about it. Talking about things. So what what do you have in store for us, sir? Go ahead. My movie is <laughs> I think one of the most loathed comic book graphic novel adaptations uh, that fanboys love to hate on and that movie is from 2003's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen starring the Sir Sean Connery himself In times of great peril the world must call upon the services of a singular individual Welcome to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen I'm waiting to be impressed The greatest adventurer who ever lived has been recruited to find a madman. He's called the Phantom. To stop him, you must lead a team like nothing the world has seen. (laughs) Thanks. Eyes open, boy. Can't protect you all the time. Dr. Jekyll, at your service. Cheers. Extraordinary gentlemen, indeed. And women. Our transportation has arrived. You have four days, and the game is on. This year. So what are we dealing with? Unstoppable assassins. Eyes open, boy. Can't protect you all the time. That indestructible! 20th Century Fox invites you... Take the world! ...to discover an adventure... I don't know how to drive myself! ...in a league of its own. Sean Connery. I doubt you measure danger the way I do. The League. That was naughty. Now, okay. League of Extraordinary... Extraordinary? League of Extraordinary Gentlemen grossed $179 million. Plus dollars. Its rental revenue was $48 million, and the DVD sales, as of 2003, are 36, were $36 million. And this movie has a cult following. Like I said, it was not popular with critics. It was not popular by fans at all. And uh, if you go over to Wikipedia, they have a nice little generalized look at the reception here. A lot of this you can find in Rotten Tomatoes. You can look at... Look at your favorite film critic, and more than likely, they have a bad review for this movie. Uh, but some of the stuff here on Wikipedia, they say that the film opened at number two behind Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Critical reception to the film was negative, with Empire Magazine giving it two stars out of five, whilst criticizing the film's exposition and lack of character depth, saying that it... Flirts, uh, flirts dangerously close with one star ignominy or ignominy. I have, I've never said that word before. That is entertaining. A 30 out of 100 approval rating on Metacritic is based on 36 reviews. Rotten Tomatoes gives the film a score of 4 out of 10 with 17% of 177 reviews being positive. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Sun-Times, 
gave the film one star out of a possible four, stating that the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen assembles a splendid team of heroes to battle a plan for world domination. And then, just when it seems about to become a real corker of an adventure movie, plunges into inexplicable motivations, causes without effects, effects without causes, and general lunacy, and all quotes there. For those of you who are not familiar with this movie, which there are some of you out there, it is a superhero movie. And it's based loosely from one of the volumes of the comic book series entitled The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, written by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. And during production of this movie, Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill put as much distance between themselves and this movie, as much of it as they could, because they weren't happy with what they were doing with the material. It is set in the late 19th century, and it features... It's The, the superhero group is made up all uh, all these famous, well-known literary characters, Victorian-era superheroes. And some of those heroes, or some of those Victorian-era literary heroes, are Alan Quartermain, performed by Sean Connery, Captain Nemo, Mina Harker, performed by the lovely Peter Wilson, Rodney Skinner, the Invisible Man, Tony Curon, you have uh, Dorian Gray, you have Tom Sawyers in it, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you have the Phantom M, Professor James Moriarty. I liked it. I mean, this, to me, this is, it was a classic good versus bad movie, you know, using World War One as a backing. It's just fascinating. I, I love it. They, it was like the, it takes, the Industrial Revolution, you know, like with with steam trains and cars and fast boats being built, when te- when the advancement of technology was kind of in the forefront, where this everything was bigger and better and technology was going crazy, and then you have all these literary, all, all these great adventure stories, you know, Jules Verne, and so much greatness was coming out in technology and in stories that. This movie, in a way, encapsulates it all in one big, fun, adventure-type movie. Yes, the movie promises you so much at the very beginning. It has a great introduction to the bad guy. It has a great introduction to Alan Quartermain, Sean Connery, your main hero. It's kind of like the beginning of Indiana Jones. Not as good as it. But it kind of has the same effect where you're thrown into the, you're, there's the setup of the movie and then all of a sudden the actors look at you, you know, the movie just stares at you, you know, in the face and says, hold on to your hats and get ready for a ride because this movie is going to take you for a ride. A lot of people didn't buy it. I bought it. I enjoyed it. At the time when it came out, 2003, I was 14 years old, 14. Yeah, I guess I just turned 14. You know, I I think every guy, even a young teenager, you know, it's I, I knew that this the CGI in this movie was a little shoddy, but to me, all the movie the movie's imperfections, maybe it's because there were so many imperfections, I don't know, made the movie, in my opinion, really really good and really really effective. I bought into the idea that it was a classic adventure from the early twentieth uh, century. You know, I, I just bought into it. I enjoyed it. I like the adventure aspect. I like the grandiose, over-the-top action where they're driving this car and going through, you know, Venice, through through Italy, and then you have Captain Neo's 
Nemo's uh, ship, you know, coming up from the through the French Canal and all. It's there, you know. It's how did it get there? How can it make all those twists and turns through the canals? And suddenly, it's in the middle of, you know, it's in the middle of of the city. It just doesn't make any sense when you think about it. But the action and the development of the characters and how they interact is so well played that I just really didn't care about the logistics as much. And again, this is coming from a 14-year-old boy's perspective who just really loves these kinds of movies. And really, the only drawback I have with it is that they sub out like what they had in action and over-the-top action they could have used for more character work. Even though, to me, the character work was actually good, I loved. I the it's just it was just funny. I liked their interaction. I, I I like the bond between all of them and the lack thereof. You know, one of a couple of them turn out to be bad guys, but you don't know who or why or when it's going to happen. There's these great fight scenes at the end, chock full of these moments that I really like, where they know that they're having fun. The movie doesn't take itself seriously whatsoever, and every once in a while, when there are those cheeky moments, it's kind of like they're the actors turning towards towards you watching the movie, watching them, and just giving you a little wink, you know, or a little tip of the hat, just saying, I hope you're enjoying yourselves. But then, you know, I'm the only one who liked it, apparently. You know, I don't even know if Matt likes it. Who knows? So, yes, my I'm the only one who liked it for this round is The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen from 2003. Wow, 11 years ago almost. Alrighty, well my uh, pick, as was hinted at heavily last week, is 2009's Terminator Salvation. We've been fighting a long time. We are outnumbered by machines. Humans have a strength that cannot be measured. This is John Connor. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. I thought I knew our enemy. Something has changed. Skynet is taking human prisoners, replicating human tissue. Let's see what we've got here. And in this future, I don't know that we can win this war. This thing is something we've never seen before. My name is Marcus Wright. You think you're human? I am human.
while this movie was not necessarily a uh, it was not a financial failure but it was a disappointment it, it made uh, 371 million on a budget of 200 million so not quite recouping double its budget but enough to at least be passable it was however a complete critical failure it holds a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes as of now, and they basically say that the story has no heart, and it's just a complete mechanical thing that, uh, you know, just doesn't carry on the torch as well as it should have. And I must say I completely disagree. Now, again, this is the 2009 Terminator Salvation. It stars Christian Bale and Sam Worthington, uh, also in a minor role but you you know visually prominent anyway uh helena bottom carter as well and what we're seeing here and and this is why i think people i i really and truly think that people just misunderstood the point of view that this particular story was telling it had the distinct disadvantage of not having Arnold Schwarzenegger, as we talked about last week. But more than that, it also had the... And even though it did have a CGI version of the young Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I thought was just completely amazing. What a, you know, what an amazing throwback. That was, I thought that was a great nod. It's also the first movie that actually tells what happens after everything that you know and love has transpired. This is the first movie that really actually delves into what the future is like. This is this doesn't have as much to do with what Arnold Schwarzenegger did in the first three movies, and therefore can be removed from it. And I just think that everyone was expecting the same style of film. And the thing is, is that it's not. The The subject matter isn't the same. The story itself isn't the same. You're now dealing with the actual aftermath of everything. It's dark. It is dystopian. People don't know who to trust. Human race is on the brink of collapse. These are all real issues. And I'm sorry if you don't have a heart... And telling them because there's not heart to this story, except in the form of Sam Worthington. And even, and it also goes to show just how brilliantly evil Cyberdyne really is in terms of, or Skynet specifically, in how they behave and how they actually go to exterminate the human population. You have Stam, Sam Worthington's character. Uh, he plays a guy by the name of Marcus Wright, who signs his body over to science uh, instead of going to, you know, the electric chair or whatever, and is basically somehow magically preserved when Skynet blows up the world. Through a series of misadventure so to speak john connor ends up freeing him or his team ends up freeing him and they meet up and they have these misadventures and then you discover the horrible truth behind marcus wright and yet that's what leads to the heart of this movie is 
And it is that link to the previous three films. But they did it in their own unique way, and they told a great story in doing so. You really get to see just exactly how conflicted John Connor is about his role that he knows must happen. You get to see how the humans play out. You get to see how Skynet behaves. And you get to see, once again, the opponent's battle between good and evil. It's just awesome. I thought that the story was good. I was very impressed with this movie. I didn't think that it deserved as much critical panning as it got. And everybody, most everybody went and saw it. $371 million is not exactly anything to sneeze at. And yes, most of the people that I talked to from the audience were also somewhat disappointed. But again, I really think that everyone just went into this expecting more of the same. And that wasn't the point of this story. Will they be able to fix it now that they've, now that they're bringing Arnold Schwarzenegger back? I don't know. But quite frankly, I don't really see much to fix. Is it a perfect movie? No. I, I think that they were smart in keeping it under two hours, but I think that they probably could have cut out a little bit more of the exposition, and they probably could have cut out a little bit of the tortured soul process that John Connors ex- exhibits. It's just not... In this particular role, it was not Christian Bale's strong point. Even so, it's still a good movie, still tons of action, got heart as far as I'm concerned, despite the subject matter, and really deserves watching. It's been five years. If you haven't seen it since it came out, check it out again. Remember, the movie doesn't change, but your perspective does. And that is why I maintain that I'm the only one who liked it. 2009's Terminator Salvation. And I guess that brings us to what we're going to do next week. <laughs> Which will be a return of Three Squared. And this is an actual, this is actually a very interesting one. It's our three favorite fictional movie character leaders. For instance, John Connors, right? Leader of the Resistance in, in the Terminator movies. Okay. He is a fictional movie character leader. So we're going to pick our three favorites. That's going to be the three squared for next week. And without further ado, unless there's anything else we need to add, Tim? No, sir. Here we go, folks. It's the movies. Yes, the movies. Okay, so we had... A Fantastic Fear of Everything, Draft Day, and Oculus. Tim, where would you like to get started? Let's go with uh, A Fantastic Fear of Everything. All right, A Fantastic Fear of Everything. Do you think you had a happy childhood? What is your earliest memory? The orphanage on fire. You're being facetious. No, no, I'm not really. The orphanage I was in caught fire. Uh, November the 5th, 1979. Luckily, no one was hurt. Do you have a title? Decades of Death. 
It's a detective story. You know, how do they get there? What fills them with the need to victimize and kill? Why choose mass murder? Whatever happened to the hedgehog? What? I didn't mean to become a children's author. It was a terrible accident. I can't take it anymore. I, I'm going to buckle, I swear to God. I'm sick of these irrational fears. Like the bloody laundrette, it's stopping me from living my life. You must return to the scene of the crime. Begin a new life, free from fear. fear, fear. Ah, it's all right, mate. You know me. I'm sensitive. I've never even bought toilet roll. Excuse me. Are these yours? It's 2012's British comedy horror film starring Simon Pegg. This is about a guy. <laughs> He's a, a named Jack. He's a, a children's author who has a knack for story, storytelling, but he his storytelling ability has left him because of this obsession over one of his books, Harold the Hedgehog. It eventually costs him his marriage. It's costing him ever so much more his sanity and starts leading to obsessions with serial killers and stuff like that. He then goes on a series of misadventures when he's actually just, and it's really just supposed to be a simple meeting with someone from the BBC over a, uh, over some scripts that he's wanting to do. I think it was called decades of death, right? And this chain of events leads to all sorts of mishaps that are supposed to be funnier as they get more and more outlandish, ultimately leading to potential realizations of all sorts of fears that kind of cause him to work through stuff. I want to say this is kind of like a twisted dark version of the man who knew too little and where i thought that the man who knew too little was funny aside from simon Pegg, who i i like and it just makes me want to like this movie i really just think that overall this movie tries way too hard to be funny and in doing so comes off as uh, awkward and even worse, in a lot of cases, bland. Also somewhat predictable. And yeah, I I don't know. I was not really a big fan of this movie. I, I didn't like it. I'm, again, to me, it just wasn't really all that funny. Simon Pegg is really the only thing worth watching in this movie. And unfortunately, it's not enough. Uh, cinematography, nothing really special there. Special effects, meh. Um, 
yeah, I don't really have a whole lot good to say about it. I didn't like it. Two stars for me. I, I don't know. Tim, this was your pick, sir. What, where did you land on it? I, I'm, I think I'm at like 3.5 out of 5 stars. It's, it's a very interesting movie because I think that it was made by very talented people who probably should have worked on a couple more movies before doing this one. I, I don't know. I guess I really don't have any <laughs> room to really say that, but that's just kind of how, how I feel. Though I do think that the movie succeeds in many, many ways. It is very entertaining. I think somewhere down the line I would like to watch it again. Simon Pegg was a pretty decent uh, choice to play the part. I liked how they were trying to create a dark and creepy looking world from like a, I guess like a writer's point of view. But it just seemed like they were trying to get a little too, I, I mean, Tim Burton-y. You know, if that makes any sense. Just trying just a little too hard. And sometimes the effects really just kind of don't work. That's usually when that it's special effects and people, you know, put together. So uh, it's kind of like Jack the Giant Killer, you know, where we were talking about that. The special effects were, were pretty decent when you were just looking at the special effects. But when there was the mix of special effects and human beings, real people, it just didn't you know, was not convincing whatsoever. And that's how I feel, you know, whereas it was trying to be more like a story and or more of like a like a graphic novel or, you know, or whatever, it just came across as hokey and more of like, you know, you kind of want to critique it than really enjoy it or deal with it. Um, that's really the only criticism I have with it. I really like the idea of it. It's simple, you know, though the movie itself really isn't that simple. It's just kind of a simple idea. Most of it is very sharp and very creative. And I, I like the idea. I like the mix of a an alternate kind of vision of one's surroundings, you know. And it just worked. It just definitely worked. I, I liked it just a little bit more than Matt, so 3.5. Again, the one thing that just really kind of took it away from me is the uh, trying too hard aspect. Yay! So where do you want to go from here, sir? We've got uh, Draft Day and Oculus. Uh, we'll say the best for last, and let's go with Draft Day. Okay, best for last. All right, Draft Day. This is the Draft Day Browns fans were waiting for. Sonny, I hope you're listening. You run this team. You're the general manager. You can fix it. Hey, Tom. Hey, Sonny. Sonny. Every year, someone comes out of this looking like a donkey. Can you hear me? Yeah. Good, because tomorrow I got a feeling it could be you if you don't make this deal. Let's talk about the draft. I need you to make a splash, Sonny. If you can't do it, then I have to do it. Just to be clear here, you're threatening to fire me, Ryan. Your job is to coach a team I give you. They do it different in Dallas? Yeah, they do. They win. A lot. How is it that the ultimate prize in the most macho sport ever invented is a piece of jewelry? We talk football? We can always talk football. I just want the team that I want one time. You see things other people don't see. Rewind that back to the start of the play. That's one of the things I love about you. All that matters is what you think. Write your own story, Sonny. I want this team's future back. Let's get busy. Draft day. History in the making. 224 young men are about to become players in the National Football League. Bo Callahan, he's the surefire slam dunk number one pick. Trade me. I'm going to do what's best for the team. 
This is the draft analysis we've all been working on for the last two months. Just made a trade with the Seahawks. Sonny, that's our future. You sold a cow for magic beans. How does the entire world already know about this, Mom? Because I just tweeted it. You're on Twitter? You're not. I loved having the number one pick. I hope that you would. The Cleveland Browns are now on the clock. It's go time, boss. You're going rogue. Who are you going to take? What's happening? Who are you picking? You son of a... I need five minutes, and then you can fire me. I got Tom Michaels on the line. Sonny, are we trading six? I quit, Sonny. Don't quit. See what I do from here. You're going to like this. The football world is in shock, wondering what exactly the Cleveland Browns' Sonny Weaver Jr. is cooking up here. You're not going to believe what's happening. You make this deal right now, say it with me. An absolute stutter. Okay, screw it. No more offer. You're out of your mind. Yeah, I am. Haven't I proved that already? I, I remember when you had were, were talking about uh, Jack Ryan shadow recruit, and yeah. you had pointed out that uh, it was approved by like the AARP or something like that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Kevin Costner must have a stake in the AARP because I'm willing to bet that they probably like this movie too. This is definitely a movie for older people. um it is still fresh it's barely hanging on it's got a 61 percent on rotten tomatoes so it does just barely qualify i wanted to see this movie um it looked interesting on the preview i wasn't really looking out to see this movie i do like ivan reitman films but um i was like okay well that looks interesting i'll probably catch it when it comes on netflix and then i saw that it actually had a fresh rating on rotten tomatoes i was like i could not believe i was like what and so that's why I wanted to see this movie. And I can see why it has a fresh rating. It's It's got stuff for the football fans, and it's definitely got stuff for the over 40 crowd. Uh, more for the over 40 crowd than for football fans. But, you know, if you're over 40 and you're a football fan, you probably have already seen this movie. Um, it's got a nice story. Unfortunately, it just simply... It, it went and found... It didn't just beat a dead horse. It takes the dead horse. It beats the dead horse. It then processes the dead horse into glue. And goes to the glue factory, buys the glue, and beats that glue until it's dead. Gluing yet another horse that it's going to beat to death together to hold it together longer like a pinata. So that it can then beat that horse into the ground. That's how many tropes are just completely shoved in your face for this movie. The whole movie is nothing but an exercise in everything you have ever already seen ever before in a sports movie. On top of which, there were two things that bothered me. One was a significant plot point, and the other was just something that bothers me. It bothers me in real life, and because it bothers me in real life, it ultra bothers me in movies frank langella plays the team owner this is all fictionalized so you know this is for the uh cleveland browns he, he plays the owner of the cleveland browns anthony molina and he always wears sunglasses daytime nighttime inside outside always wears sunglasses and i fucking hate that 
I cannot stand that. It is so... It's not even arrogant. It's someone who thinks that they're arrogant. It's it's hubris taken to stupidity. It's someone who thinks they're badass and they don't realize how stupid and ridiculous they actually are. <laughs> he was just he just needed to pop his collar up. That's, that's uh, oh my god! Yes, yes, that's that was all he needed. And a Lacoste polo. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe for him they could have had a Lacoste blazer so it had the little green fucking alligator <laughs> on it. I don't know. At any rate. Uh, so that just ultra bothers me, okay? And, that, and, and it doesn't really have anything to do with the plot, but I just hate that. And the second he comes on screen, you know that that's what's going to happen in the rest of the movie. You're like, come on, really? So whatever, fine. The other thing that bothered me is Jennifer Garner plays Kevin Costner's uh, love interest, girlfriend. Uh, they're, they're kind of trying to have an under-the-table romance um, because it's office place. Uh, even though it's not... It's like an open secret. Everybody knows, but they think no one else knows. I guess I don't know. So she's pregnant. They, they, it's it's a major plot point in terms of the development of their relationship in the movie. The thing is, is that she tells him the way they explain it. She either told him the night before draft day or that morning of draft day, and then she's pissed at him because he doesn't know how to handle it. He's the general manager of the Cleveland Browns going into the biggest draft day of his career. What the, this is a woman I don't understand. I, if there's a woman out there who could please explain this to me, you work with this man, you understand exactly what kind of a day he's about to have. And then you spring on him, by the way, I'm pregnant. And you wonder why he's not taking it well. And then you're going to hold it against him. And then he's got to like, you know, work his way out from the hole that he's dug throughout the movie and again this goes to like a big portion of the movie i i what the hell are you thinking who does that who actually does that and she actually says oh i'm a woman and i've had to fight twice as hard because i'm a woman and i like football to find my place in the zone. then you should know that you don't tell the general manager who you're stooping supposedly behind everybody's back at work that you're fucking pregnant on the biggest day of his fucking career I don't know. I, maybe that's just not the right time. I, you know, maybe the next day, maybe the end of the night. Who knows? You know, cap off a wonderful draft day by telling him you're pregnant. You know, try and bring his spirits up after the worst draft day he's ever had by telling him you're pregnant. Wait then. You waited all this time. What's 24 more hours? I don't know. And that's what goes. Everything in this movie has been beaten to death a million times over. Despite that. It's still charming, and I still kind of liked it. So I'm giving it 2.75. Better than okay, not quite liked it. <laughs> it was charming, and take it or leave it. 2.75 for me. Go ahead, sir. I am I agree with Matt completely. Uh, the movie was too fluffy, I thought, and too happy for its own good. Because it's like... It's hard to take the movie seriously when there is just so much frickin' product placement thrown in your face. I mean, it's obvious that NFL teams are gonna be, you know, it's all gonna be, all their logos and shit, it's all gonna be in this movie due to what the movie is about. But it's, every scene, if they're not talking about a football team or somebody, you see it on a screen or see it 
on well usually there's like 55 screens in each room that they show in this movie so there's constant logos which is fine but i think that kind of just takes away from the drama of the movie you know when you just completely when the movie is just centered around this one particular thing and i guess maybe that's why they try to introduce the whole pregnancy thing and then the issue with his dad being dead and for some reason the mother can't understand that you know he's working so he doesn't have time to go help her spread his father's ashes on the 50 yard line at the football field that is right next door so it's just i don't know it's just a lot of stuff just didn't make sense at all again it was too fluffy and too upbeat for it to be a successful drama the movie really didn't hold my attention all that much it felt a little a little like a made for tv movie or an hbo movie they did a movie about the uh, Obama-McCain presidential race. It was directed by Jay Roach. He, dr- he did Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, and the Austin Powers movies. And it was mainly about John McCain and, um, and Sarah Palin. Julian Moore with Sarah Palin. Oh, God, the, the actor's name. Ed Harris. Yeah. Ed Harris. And, you know, I mean, the movie was good for an HBO movie, you know? And this is how I felt with Draft Day. It was an inter... I mean, it was kind of entertaining and, I guess, charming due to Kevin Costner and a couple of the other actors. But it just... I don't know. It just... It was missing something. And, unfortunately, the movie was directed by Ivan Reitman. So, I, I just don't know why the movie just... It didn't have that spark... You know, it just didn't have that that spunkiness to it that would really scream, you know, hey, you know, you're watching a good drama or a good dramedy or, you know, whatever this was trying to be. I felt like this movie, if, if The Wolf of Wall Street was rated PG, I think it would have been kind of like this movie. You know, nobody cusses. I mean, to my knowledge, the movie is PG-13, but I mean, it, I mean, it felt like it could have even have been a PG movie. So, yeah, I just really can't say anything else about the movie without it seeming just really, you know, going at it for around in circles. So I give this movie 2.5 stars. It didn't hold my attention completely, but there's still something about the movie that is kind of sort of worth watching. Catch it. It's probably going to be one of those movies that you find on, on a TNT, you know, and you just watch that five times a year because it's on TNT. So, yeah. Drafting. 2.5 out of 5. Alright, well then that brings us to the last movie. Oculus. The 2013 American supernatural drama horror film. Directed by Mike Flanagan. Starring Karen Gillian, Brenton Thwaites, uh, Rory Cochran, and Katie Sackhoff. Okay, so this is a movie that takes place on two parallel fronts. It's told from the perspective of a brother and sister. A uh, brother who has just been released from a mental facility after shooting his dad. And his sister, uh, who is there to help him try and re-enter society, but at the same time, destroy an evil entity related to a mirror that caused all the problems leading up to the shooting of her dad. Uh, or of their, of their dad. Now... That's storyline one. Storyline two is the actual events leading up to the shooting of the dad from when they were kids. Because it happened when they were kids. He goes to the 
mental hospital. He comes out, and now they're trying to resolve everything today. Uh, this movie is not conventionally scary. There's nothing there where they they don't do any. Uh, well, let me rephrase that. I won't say they won't do. It's not that they don't do any. They do very limited, you know, jump scares where they actually have something. Nothing really ever jumps out. It's always one of those just pan and then all of a sudden there it is kind of scares. They don't do that a lot. There are a few of those, which I think is good because they rely on the pacing. They rely on the storytelling. And they actually do a very good job of keeping you guessing. And it's when you have to keep guessing and you don't understand everything that you're seeing, it leads to confusion. People are afraid of what they don't understand. People get irked by things that confuse them, especially when they can't get the answer that they want. And it's just the way people are. Everybody's that way. And this movie plays on that. And it plays on that in a very brilliant way. The only problem with it is that as the movie gets into the final third, everything is it's all starting to come to a head. It's a, you know, everything's getting all the way up to the to the crescendo as it builds there and it gets a little too fast-paced and then it becomes it stops being hard to follow and then just kind of you just feel lost and you start to lose that sense of thrill and you start to lose that sense of oh my gosh why is this happening and how is this all going to play out you start to lose that it does pick it up in the last say seven minutes of the movie it does make sure that you do get a clear understanding of exactly what's happening, exactly what's going to play out, and it does that brilliantly. So it does salvage itself in the last, say, like about seven minutes of the film. But that last third overall kind of suffers because the pacing is too quick, it's too nonstop, the flashbacks and the cuts are just too much. That being said, still very enjoyable movie, Excellent work, especially by the young Kaylee Russell, who was played by a young uh, young lady by the name of Annalise Basso. I thought she was probably the, the star of the movie for me. Great performance, totally believable, super cute. Of course, I'm partial. I've got a redhead, you know, myself. So, uh, you know, so, I, so of course, the redhead girl's going to, you know, be the be my favorite i suppose but i mean even even then she i mean i really thought she she delivered a great performance as well and i thought hers was the strongest performance but even still i thought the writing was great it was really nice to see katie sackoff in something different this was truly something different for her not stretching her acting abilities it was very it was very comfortable uh to see her. I, I wasn't a big fan of the dye job of her hair, but eh, whatever. Um, other than that, though, I still think this is a fantastic movie. Really, really great. Very wonderful in terms of keeping you guessing, leaving you confused, but not too much so with the exception of that last third. And provides excellent thrill. It's not it's not scary per se as much as it is as much as it is very intense, very thrilling and great fun to watch. For me, 4 stars. I really really liked this movie a lot. I liked how it was more of a psychological thriller than a than than there being like a, a definitive monster, you know, in the movie. 
or ghost or paranormal thing or whatever. I mean, they're dealing with an evil mirror. I'm not going to go into any more detail about it, but that's that. I mean, that's kind of what it pertains to. And I like the idea where, or I like the whole thing where it's not just the older kids that are questioning their sanity, but it's also the younger kids are doing that as well. And not many movies can really handle the the jumping through time, you know, without there being like a oh hey we are doing this and it goes back you know 30 years in the past or whatever this movie it does it so fluidly you know it's very fluid it's very nice and i'm ex- i'm just excited for the horror genre now because i like the idea of there being one decent horror movie at, at least one decent horror movie a year i mean we've had insidious which i thought was really good the conjuring from last year i thought was really good so, you know, this is this is pretty good. This is pretty good. It doesn't try too hard to be a, a horror film. It feels very natural and authentic. You know, the, whenever the scares do happen, it's more of like what some critics are saying that they're sacrificing outright terror and, and, and scares for dread. Because it's very hallucinatory. People say that the biggest fear or what people fear the most is losing their mind becoming somebody else and this is kind of like what the characters are having to deal with you know their sanity and the reason behind that why they are having to deal with their sanity and all, all this hallucinatory stuff that's happening and more importantly yes the movie does leave it open for sequels a franchise even it left it actually left me wanting more so the sequel tie-in worked for me you know i i enjoyed it i'm excited for to see what uh, you know, what else is going to happen? It's great. Like what uh, what Matt said. Kitty Sackhoff is in it. Always good to see her. Karen Gillian, or Jillian. She was in Doctor Who. I love her. Great to see her in this. So it's it's definitely worth, definitely worth checking out. If you don't mind movies where it's not about ghosts, it's not about zombies, it's not about vampires, and it, it's, like I said, said, there's no, like, definitive bad guy. There's no, like, creature. So check it out. Enjoy it. I give this one 4.5 out of 5. Alright, so that's going to be it for the movies then. Next week's movies are... Spider-Man 2, The History of Future Folk, and Valhalla Rising. And until then, I believe it is time for the spiel. Spiel on. Outstanding. All right. The music, as always, that you've been listening to has been brought to you by our music partners, Corizo Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, you can check out us at our website, SLScast.com, because we're the SLScast, naturally, and we have revamped the website a little bit, so hopefully you'll take a look at that. Tim was hard at work redoing the logos and what have you. So check that out and let us know what you think. You can also send us an email to the SLScast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can also go to Facebook and search the SLScast there. You can even subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So with all that wonderful news, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Johnny Depp, I get to say this, me, I'm dishonest, and you can always trust a dishonest man to be dishonest. Honestly, it's the honest ones you have to watch out for. (laughs) That's Hollywood for you. Talk to you next week, guys.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.